Well, I don't know about you, but I love studying the themes of the Bible. Talking about the key topics that are linked all throughout Scripture, one example is the theme of cities in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that several cities play a prominent role in the Bible? It's almost like the cities become characters themselves. For example, when you think of Babylon in the Bible, what do you think? You probably think of false religion. The ancient city of Babylon was known for its idolatrous pagan worship. And so several times in the Bible, Babylon itself becomes like a character representing counterfeit religion. You also have, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, which in the Bible and even today, still we use them to represent man's depravity, the worst that mankind has to offer. Then, of course, you've got Jerusalem, which was supposed to stand for the city of God, but the Jews missed God behind their system of works, righteousness. And, and so in the Bible, what Jerusalem really comes to stand for is religiosity, just dead religion. It's no wonder that Jerusalem is destroyed and we're left waiting for a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, where God will dwell with his people forever. Anyway, just a few examples of this interesting motif in scripture of cities. Several prominent cities stick out because of their unique character. And it's like they become characters of their own in the drama of Scripture. And this is certainly true with another city, or should I say a little town, Bethlehem. When you think of Bethlehem in the Bible, what do you think? What thoughts does Bethlehem evoke in your mind? Probably thoughts of peace, joy, blessing. Of course, that's because we associate Bethlehem with the birthplace of Jesus. The story of the birth of Jesus dominates our thinking of the little town of Bethlehem. So we associate this city with peace. If you look at medieval art of Bethlehem, it's always just quiet, quaint little village, like a little resort town. The famous song, it goes, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. It's quiet, it's quaint, it's peaceful. You think, what a fitting place for Jesus to be born. But what if I told you that's not quite true? What if I told you that biblically and and historically the little town of Bethlehem represents rebellion and immorality? Would that give you pause? Or think of it this way. What if Jesus was born in Sodom? Would you find that an inappropriate birthplace for the Savior? And that would seem shocking that God would send his son into the heart of darkness like that. That wouldn't seem appropriate. But biblically speaking and historically speaking, the town of Bethlehem has more in common with Sodom and Gomorrah than than Jerusalem. Did you know that? Does that shock you? Does that at least pique your interest? Well, today is the Sunday before Christmas, which I typically reserve for a special Christmas-themed message and This year, I want to highlight the surprising significance behind the birthplace of Jesus, which we all know it's Bethlehem. But why was Jesus born there? Why did Jesus have to be born there? And what does it teach that Jesus was born there? Yeah, you already know a little, I'm sure. You know, like the Old Testament predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Yeah, you know that. But I guarantee there's more than meets the eye with this little town. Like I said earlier, we tend to view Bethlehem romantically, such that the city represents to us peace. But biblically and historically, Bethlehem really does have more in common with Sodom and Gomorrah. Bethlehem has one of the most corrupt, depraved, and sordid histories of any city in the Bible. 
It is not a place you would think fitting for a king to be born in. Yet God purposely orchestrated Christ's birth there. Yes, to fulfill prophecy, but also to teach us something about the nature of his coming. And this forms then a worthwhile subject of reflection this Christmas Sunday. Something you've probably never thought of before. And so I want to expose you this morning to the significance of Christ's birthplace. Why Bethlehem? Why did it have to be Bethlehem? And what does the significance of Christ's birthplace teach us about the significance of Christ's birth? Well, this Christmas Sunday we're going to find out. And to get you started, you need to view Bethlehem through the lens of biblical history. And we find that back in Judges. So, take your Bible, open with me to Judges chapter 17. Of all places for a Christmas sermon, Judges chapter 17. And as you turn, let me give you a super brief review of Israel's history. Their national history started when God called them out of slavery in Egypt. He made them his own. He made a covenant with them, a promise where he promised to be their God. They would be his people. If they would just seek him and serve him, he would bless them in the land which he was giving. And speaking of that land, God brought them into this promised land. After Moses died, Joshua led the people to conquer and inhabit this land. And that generation was faithful to the Lord, their God, and God blessed them as promised. So the book of Joshua ends, well, for the most part, Israel has taken the land and they're blessed. But as you get into the book of Judges, you find that the next generation didn't do so well. They did not continue to drive out the inhabitants of the land and they did not continue to serve God. In fact, they just one generation after they entered the land, they forgot God, they forsook God, and we see Israel already going after false gods and idols. Just one generation and they're already done with God. So God started to afflict them like he promised. He allowed other nations to rise up against them. And this gets us into the cycle of the book of Judges. Because of the people's rebellion and idolatry, God allowed other nations to rise up and to afflict them, and Israel suffered greatly under these four nations. It got so bad that eventually the people were so humbled by their sin that they just they just finally cried out to God for help. And God in mercy raised up for them a judge, a deliverer, who would turn the people's hearts back to God, defeat their enemies, and restore Israel as they should be. Things became well after the judge came. However, every time after the judge died, the people quickly forgot about God again, and the cycle just repeats itself over and over again. This same cycle goes over and over in the book of Judges. And this chronicles... Over 250 years of Israel's history. Just this is, this is all it was. This is a time period in Israel's history when they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost and they were blind. Now that said, it's very interesting how Judges ends. The last five chapters, 17 through 21, it's like they don't have anything to do with the book of Judges. They're not part of this cycle. They don't mention any Judges. It's like they're two random stories tacked onto the end. There are two stories here. Story 1, chapter 17, 18. Story 2, chapters 19 through 21. And at first they appear like they're totally random. Like they don't belong. They're just someone added them to the end of Judges. They don't, they don't seem to belong. But upon further study, you learn that these stories, they're not random at all. They're very purposeful in their placement. 
and they're tied together by an important thread. And that thread is Bethlehem. Both of these stories, in one way or another, have to do with that little town of Bethlehem. That seems odd, right? But interesting. So I think these two stories are worth a closer look. So let's do that now. We start with story number one. It begins in Judges 17. Now I'll summarize most of it because it's so long, but we can start off by reading how this story begins. Judges 17. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there's a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And then he then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and a household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. All right, now after reading that, you're probably thinking, what? Like, what is going on here? What, what is this story about? It seems like a totally random story. There's this random guy we've never heard before, Micah. And we learn this story. He stole from his mother a ton of money. His mother then cursed the thief. She didn't know who it was. That curse started to weigh on his conscience. So he eventually fessed up. He's like, Mother, I'm the thief. I stole the silver. She forgives him. He gives back the silver. So she takes the silver and dedicates it to the Lord. I think that's, that's wonderful, right? She dedicates it to the Lord. Until you learn what she used the silver for. They had it melted down and formed into a graven image and a shrine, an ephod, and idols. That's not so good. So this is a story of counterfeit worship in Israel. This is a story of a family who's decided to make their own house of God, their own shrine, their own altar, their own priesthood. Meanwhile, they're totally ignoring God's word, God's priesthood, God's tabernacle. This just highlights the perversion of worship in Israel at that time. The problem with this story is that nobody sees this as a problem. They thought they were doing fine. They thought they were doing good. Such idolatry was accepted. Why? Because of verse 6. Verse 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Don't forget that verse, that phrase. You'll see it again. This is the theme here. There was no king. People just did what they wanted. And of course that led to sin and immorality and idolatry. Now let's keep going. The story continues. Verse 7 says, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Okay, so now we're next introduced to this man with no name. We never learn his name. doesn't matter. What matters is his position. He's a Levite, which is a priest of Israel. However, he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. Levites were only supposed to come from Levi, not Judah. Also, they weren't supposed to travel around. God gave them special cities to live in and to minister in. 
So this is just another example of another guy who was just doing whatever was right in his own eyes. Just did what he wanted. He made himself a priest, and now he's going to find some place to work. So this self-appointed priest, where is he from? Bethlehem. And what does it already say about Bethlehem that they are producing this type of counterfeit priest? It reveals that the people and priesthood of Bethlehem, they're already pretty corrupt and wicked by this point. Just keep that in mind. Now, to summarize the rest of the chapter, Micah ends up meeting this priest, and he, he makes him an offer. He says, I want you to become my personal household priest. I'll pay you a lot. And the Levite, he's like, this sounds great. So he takes, he takes a job. He becomes a household priest ministering before all of his silver idols. Now, this is meant to be shocking to us. We would expect this Levite to be appalled by Micah's idolatrous setup. Like, no, this is wrong. I can't do this. But this Levite, he's got no problem. He's like, oh, this sounds great. This is a great gig. And he fits right in. And he starts worshiping and ministering. The spiritual decay of Israel was already severe by this time. Why? Because there was no king. That's how the next chapter begins. The story continues. Chapter 18, verse 1. It says, in those days, there was no king of Israel. In those days, every person, every tribe, they just did you know, whatever they wanted to do. And there's no one to stop them. And that led to sin. Man on his own will quickly wander away from God. And as a case in point, just look at chapter 18. The story continues, but now it tells us about the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Dan... They weren't very happy with their allotted land, the land that God gave them. So they wanted some greener pastures. So they migrate. They go look for a new place to conquer and to live in. Like the Levite, though, they totally disregarded what God said about where they should live. This was not what they were supposed to do, but they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, the Danites, they found a new place and they go to conquer it, new place to live. En route, though, they stopped by the house of Micah because they had heard Micah, he possesses his own altar, his own graven image, his own ephod, and even his own priest. That's pretty much everything you need to set up your own personal religion or house of worship. So the Danites, they stop by Micah's house and they just take it all. They take it all for themselves. They told the Levite from Bethlehem, hey, why don't you come? You be our priest now. Be priest to the whole tribe of Dan. He's like, this is a better gig. So he takes it. He's happy, and he goes with them. Whereas before, you have Micah stealing from his mother. Now this tribe of Dan, they steal from him, and there's no one to stop them. People are just doing what's right in their own eyes, and, and there's no one to stop them. The tribe went on to conquer the new land. They established their chief city, and they named that city Dan. And the story concludes, Judges 18, look at verse 31. It says, So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made, all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. And that's it. That's the end of the story. That last verse, though, really tells you what this is all about. If you know the Old Testament, you've heard of the city of Dan before. It became a prominent city of Israel, but it was always known for one thing idolatry. Until the time of the captivity, Dan was like one of the chief centers of counterfeit religion in Israel and idol worship, and thereby invoking God's anger. They ignored the real house of God, which at this time was in Shiloh, 
and they set up their own house of God. So really, chapters 17 and 18, they're telling us the story and the history behind Israel's later idolatry. The spiritual roots of their future wickedness are right here. And their demise, it it starts right here. And in a way, this demise can be traced back to Bethlehem. Because that idolatrous priest of Bethlehem became the idolatrous priest of Dan. And he and his descendants snared Israel until the time of the captivity. This This is where it begins in Dan. But furthermore, this story also highlights the theme that everyone just did whatever was right in their own eyes. No one heeded God's law, and there was nothing to stop a person or a tribe from stealing from others or from setting up their own personal religion. People just did what they wanted because there's no king. Now just remember all this. This is story number one. It's it's starting to seem a little less random. Just, Just stay with me. Let me introduce you now to story number two. We continue. Story number two starts in Judges 19. So file all that away. It'll come back later. Story two, Judges 19. Look at verse one. It says, Now, it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. So the second story begins with the same refrain. There's no king in Israel. This story also features a Levite. These guys, remember, they were supposed to be the local spiritual leaders of Israel. But you you can see they weren't living up to that. As you can see here, this Levite has a concubine. That's not supposed to happen. And what do you know? Where does she come from? She comes from Bethlehem. So here, here we have another story that intersects Bethlehem in some way. But things don't work out with his concubine. Verse 2 says, But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Now there's so many things wrong with this already, from the Levite having a concubine to her continued harlotry. This is just another example, though, of the physical and the spiritual adultery of Israel at this time. Now I'll summarize now. The priest... Though, this Levite guy, he wants her back. So he goes to Bethlehem and he wins her over. She will come back with him, so they depart. They're going to go back home together. Now on their journey home, night falls. They need a place to stay. And they refuse to enter any of the dirty cities of the Gentiles. They move on to one of the cities of Israel, Gibeah of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Eventually an old man offers them hospitality and they stay the night in his house. But what happens next is crazy. Look at chapter 18, or uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, chapter 19, verse 22. It says, While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Wow, okay, so instead of showing hospitality, the men of Benjamin want to commit their immoralities with the Levite. Does that ring a bell? This is almost the exact same setup of Lot when he was in Sodom. This is the same type of sin and depravity that characterized 
Sodom that incurred God's judgment where he wiped that city out. Except this isn't Sodom. This is a city of Israel. Again, what is this telling you about the state of Israel at this time? Well, moving on, the man, the old man, he refused the men of Benjamin. But they're being forceful. So what happens next? This Levite, he takes his concubine, he shoves her out the door, and he closes the door behind her. The men of the city proceed to have their way with her all night long. In the morning, the Levite opens the door. He's going to resume his journey, and he finds her there dead on the doorstep. Now, what happens next is gruesome, but it is recorded in the Bible. I have to tell you the story. According to verse 29, the Levite then took her and cut her up into 12 pieces and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was sending a message basically saying, look at what great evil the sons of Benjamin have done. Rise up and fight them for justice. He's calling Israel to fight the worthless men of Benjamin. This is truly one of the most wicked and depraved stories in all of the Bible. And we would expect this from some of those pagan towns. But this is coming from Israel. This is God's people. But this is the result of godless living. You forsake God, this is where you end up. This is, this is how you become. Now summarize chapter 20 now. The rest of Israel assembles in war against Benjamin. They all come to fight Benjamin. Long story short, after the fighting, the entire tribe of Benjamin is annihilated and wiped out, except for 600 men. 600 men. This is a story of sin and immorality and evil and bloodshed And it almost resulted in the extinction of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the wickedness continues throughout chapter 21. You can read that on your own. They find wives for the 600 men. But we've seen enough now, enough to understand the last word, the final word in the whole book of Judges. Look at the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21. This second story concludes, this soap opera of sin and evil, it concludes... Chapter 21, verse 25. What do you know? It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what do you know? These last five chapters, they end the same way they began. Remember, these last five chapters, they break the pattern of, of the whole book of Judges. It's like they have nothing to do with Judges. There's no judge mentioned. There's, they're very different. They stand out. It makes us ask, why are these two random stories here. They're given as examples showing, for one, why Israel was cursed at this point. And we expect such behavior among the pagans. Israel should know better. But they've abandoned God and his ways, and this is what you get. This is the result. It's unchecked depravity. There's no king. People did what they wanted, and this is what happens. This is the result of our sin. Now, of course, we know it's not true. Namely, there was a king in Israel during this time. God was their king. But the people did not recognize him. They did not heed him as their king. They were not following or honoring God. They also weren't following God's priests, the Levites. God left these men behind. He appointed these men to be the local spiritual leaders of Israel. But these two stories show how wicked and corrupt the priesthood itself had become. So you put this together, there's no king, 
and there's a wicked priesthood, this is what you get. That's the point of these two stories. But we'll also mention, interestingly, like we said, both of these stories also intersect Bethlehem. Now this little seemingly insignificant town seems a little odd. Why is Bethlehem showing up in both of these stories in a, in a significant way? I mean, so far, Bethlehem seems more like Sodom and Gomorrah than, than anything else, right? I mean, so far, Bethlehem represents really the source of Israel's corruption and wickedness and waywardness. So far, Bethlehem doesn't have a history to be proud of, wouldn't you say? Overall, the period of Judges is a blight in Israel's history, and it leaves us with the anticipation for better leadership. The people, they do need a king. They do. They need a human king who will lead them to serve God as the true king. They need someone to lead them in righteousness, to lead them to follow God in his ways. They need someone who will set things right. This is wrong. This is so wrong. They need someone who will set things right. God knows this. God knows what they need, and God, he has a plan to provide for the people what they need, which is a king. What's that plan? How will God provide for the people a king? Remember that refrain, there's no king in Israel. How is God going to fix that? How is he going to provide a king? Well, I'll tell you where his plan starts. It starts in Bethlehem. Did you know there is a third Bethlehem story? Judges gives us story number one, story number two. There's a story number three. Where is it? Just turn the page. It's the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. It's no coincidence that Ruth comes after Judges, both chronologically and in the canon. And surely, the author of Judges, he could have selected any number of stories illustrating the depravity of Israel during the time of the Judges. But he chose two stories that intersected Bethlehem on purpose. Why? Well, this is why. Because from Bethlehem, from the heart of Israel's darkness, God was going to provide his king. And what does that teach? That out of man's sin and hopelessness, God can bring hope. That from the least likely of places, God can bring salvation. Look how Ruth begins, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. This is the third Bethlehem narrative. And thankfully, it's a good story. You probably know it. This man and his wife, Naomi, they leave Bethlehem because of a famine. Now, it's true in more ways than one. They go to Moab. His sons find wives there. But then this man and his sons, they all die. So Naomi, she returns back home to Bethlehem. But her daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes with her. And she vows to serve Naomi and to serve her God forever. As the story progresses, a kinsman redeemer of Naomi's deceased husband is found. This man, Boaz, ends up marrying Ruth. Even though she's a Gentile, she is an excellent woman who seeks the Lord. So really, this is a story of how God blesses those who seek him, Jew or Gentile. But this is also a story of how God himself 
is going to be a kinsman redeemer of his people, Israel, by providing them a king. Look how the story ends. Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. Ruth, Boaz get married. They have a child. Verse 17. The neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, meaning just the grandmother. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And the rest of the book just gives the genealogy of David. So Ruth, a Gentile woman, is the great-grandmother of King David. And so you're starting to see these stories are not so random after all. As you can see, this, this isn't just plain history. This is theological history. This is God's history. And these stories and Judges and Ruth, they're included in Scripture for a reason. These three Bethlehem Chronicles, they bridge the gap between the time of the Judges and the time of the Kings. And together they teach Israel needs a king. They need a king. They need a human king who will lead them to serve God as king. On their own, they're too lost. They're too wicked to really seek God. If you want proof, look no further than Bethlehem. Out of this little town come some stories of the worst depravity man has to offer. Bethlehem represents Israel's hopelessness, their need for redemption. They need a king, a shepherd, who will lead them to know God and to follow God. And God knows that. God knows that, and he's going to provide for them what they need. He'll provide for them a king after his own heart. And in God's magnificent wisdom, he will find such a king from where? From Bethlehem, from the heart of their darkness, God will provide a king. And this just shows what? Again, that out of our despair, our depravity, our hopelessness, God can bring hope. He can bring his lost people back to himself. And he will do so through this king. This is what God started to do through King David, who just so happened to be, to be born in Bethlehem. Now we can transition to First and Second Samuel, although here we'll be quite brief, telling you about the time of the beginning of Israel's kings. During this time, the people of Israel likewise realized they needed a king. They wanted a king, except, except that they wanted a king like the other nations. They wanted to be like the other nations. They still weren't concerned with God and his ways, but their own. So they chose Saul, who turned out to be a terrible king. He did not lead them in God's ways. But God in his mercy, he raised up after Saul a good king, a man after his own heart, one who would shepherd his sheep and lead them to living waters. And this was King David. And what made David a good king? It was his heart. It was just his heart. He had a heart after God. He was a young man of true faith who knew the Lord and followed the Lord and served the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's like the Lord said to Samuel when Samuel anointed David. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he said, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, for God sees not as man sees, For the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's why God chose David. 
This is what God regards, those who seek Him from the heart. On our own, we've all forsaken God. That was Israel's problem too, but God drew David's heart to Himself, and through David, He was going to draw the people's hearts to Him as well. Whereas before, you remember the refrain, there is no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. David was known for doing what was right in God's eyes. 1 Kings 15.5 And he led the people to do the same. Hence the Lord blessed David and God was going to use David for his even greater plan. You remember, David had such a zeal for the Lord, he wanted to build God a house, a temple. David just wanted God to be exalted. But God had other plans for David. God spoke to David and he said to David, you are not going to build God a house. Instead, God is going to build you a house. In other words, God had other plans for the house of David. In fact, through David, God was going to provide his king for all the nations. A perfect king who would lead God's people in God's ways forever. Let me read you this promise that God made to and through David. I'll read you 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. God said to him, When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Through David, God made a covenant, a promise to raise up an everlasting king who would reign over an everlasting kingdom. David could not be this king because he too was sinful and fallen. It would have to be a descendant of David, a seed of David, who would rise up and sit on this throne perfectly forever. This is God's solution to our problem. We, like Israel, have all gone astray. Left to our own devices, we would all be just as lost and sinful and corrupt. People today continue to do what is right in their own eyes, right? That's still the way of the world and the way of sin. We are all still like rebels against God and his ways. Our only hope is a king, a leader, a shepherd, one who would lead us back to God in his ways. We even need someone who would redeem us, who would make us new. Someone who would bring us lost sheep back to God. And God was promising such a redeemer king through David. Now, there's a problem. Because as you keep reading, we're, we're not going to do this, but as you keep reading First, Second Kings, you find out that the sons of David, they're not all they're cracked up to be. Like None of the sons of David, none of the kings after him, from Solomon onward, none of them were fitting the bill of this perfect king. They too were all fallen. In fact, some of them were extremely wicked. Some of them, far from leading the people to God, they were leading the people away from God. And the end result, the kings of Israel, the sons of David, they were so wicked themselves that the end result was what? Exile. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, the nation lost, the people scattered. It's it's over. And you think, well, how did that happen? 
I thought the people were so wicked back in Judges because they didn't have a king. Remember, there's no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So now that they have kings, they should be good, right? But the lesson learned in the era of the kings is that the monarchy is only ever as good as a man who sits on the throne. What if he's fallen, though, as they all were? Or what if he is actually wicked? Well, the nation will be just as lost as if they didn't have king. It's still true, though. The people need a king. Still true. But the lesson from First Second Kings is that they need a perfect king. They need a king who himself is perfectly righteous to lead them in perfect righteousness. And even on top of this, they need someone who can redeem them, who can change them from the inside out, give them new hearts. But what son of David is perfectly righteous like this? What son of David can redeem the people and change them on the inside? None. There's no son of David who can do that. So as time went on and all of the kings of Israel had failed, it became clear that what the people really needed was not just a son of David, but also a son of God. They needed a son of God. And this is the message of the prophets. The prophets. When the prophets wrote, it was already evident that Israel's kings had failed. But God progressively revealed his plan that he was still going to provide a king to lead and to redeem his people. This king would be a son of David, but he would also be a son of God. And so you have verses revealing God's still future plan. Verses like we read this morning, verses like Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You also have a verse like Micah 5.2, which says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The sons of David had failed, all of them. We're all sinners. We all need redemption, and they were no different. They were just the blind leading the blind. We need God to intervene, to save us, to redeem us. And that's precisely what God promised to do. He promised to send His perfect forever King who had the power to make His people likewise perfect. And of all places, where would this King come from? It was promised to come from Bethlehem as well. Once this town represented Israel's darkness, But God was going to make this town represent Israel's light. Out of their hopelessness, God was going to bring their ultimate hope. 
And this finally brings us to Christmas. Hundreds of years later, 1,000 years after David, there's this woman named Mary, who herself was a descendant of David. And one day, seemingly out of nowhere, she's greeted by this angel. And he's got a message for her. Of course, it wasn't out of nowhere. This was God's plan, centuries in the making, just unfolding. And what does the angel tell her? You know it. Luke 1, 31-35. He said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is God at work. This is God finally fulfilling his plan to redeem his people and provide for them the king that they need. And as promised, as planned, this king is born in Bethlehem. That wasn't their plan. Mary and Joseph did not plan or want Jesus born in Bethlehem. They wanted him born in Nazareth, where they were from. But you know God had other plans. And sovereignly, how did he work it out? You also know Luke 2, 1 through 5. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Verse 3, And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And you know how the story goes after this. They get to Bethlehem just barely. The child is born, and they name him Jesus. For, as the angel said to him, he will save his people from their sins. Indeed, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord is our salvation. That's what God was doing through this child, the son of David, son of God. Before he would reign over his people, he had to redeem his people. Now, that was Christ's main mission when he came, his first coming. He came first to deal with our sin problem. Realize, even if we had a perfect king over us, we still would be lost. Why? Because we have corrupt hearts. That's why all that stuff happened. It's just we have an internal problem. We have a heart problem. We have a, we have a sin problem. We do have a perfect king over us, God. Yeah, like Israel, we've all rebelled. We've all gone our own way. And this invites God's holy judgment on us. But in love, God sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us rebels. Jesus would grow to die on that cross and pay the penalty for our sins. He died the death we deserve to give us the life we don't deserve. And rising from the dead, he offers you, if you now will forsake your way, you will turn from your sins and your way, 
and you will turn to Him. You will follow Him. You will believe in Him by faith. He will save you. He will make you new and grant you eternal life. We desperately need life. Life with God. Spiritual life. New life. Jesus came to give us that life. You know, in the ancient world, life was associated with bread. Bread was their life. You don't have bread, you you die. Bread was their symbol for life, their staple food. And wouldn't you know, Bethlehem, you know what it means. You know what the name in Hebrew means. It means house of bread. House of bread. Behold God's plan to give bread to the world, to give life to the world through Jesus, Son of David, Son of God. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Take these words to heart and act on them today. Believe in Jesus and be saved. Like the song goes, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. If that's your prayer, Jesus of Bethlehem will raise you up on the last day. And there will be a last day. There will be a day when this Jesus returns, not as a child, but as a king. He will come back as King of kings and Lord of lords to deal out retribution to those who have rejected God, but to rescue and reign with His people. He will return to finally set all things right. This world is still very much wrong. Things are wrong. But He will come back. God's forever King. He will set things right. And He will bring in that everlasting kingdom. The only question is, will you be there? God in wisdom, mercy, and love, He's given you the greatest Christmas gift ever. It's the gift of a Redeemer King. Will you believe in Him? Will you seek Him? Will you follow Him for life? Don't miss out on Jesus. The reason for the season Let's honor Him today. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at Your wisdom. What a God would think of such a plan, such a magnificent plan, thousands of years in the making, even eternity in the making. You knew our frame. You know our frame. You know who we are. You know we are sinners. You know we are lost and corrupt. You know on our own, we each seek our own way and we wander far from You. We're lost. We're, we're dead men walking. But in Your grace and Your mercy, even from the very beginning, You planned a Redeemer, a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, a seed of David who would reign over us perfectly forever, even one who would make us new. We marvel at your wisdom, at your plan. We thank you for it, and we we apprehend it. We appropriate it to ourselves. Jesus is our Lord. He is the King of kings. We confess, we believe in Jesus, God the Son, Son of David, Son of God, the one whom you sent 
to pay that ultimate price for us. We were lost sheep, but he gave his own life to bring us back to you. Lord, help these truths really penetrate our heart and move us to real worship this day, this season, this year, just our entire lives. May this be the the spring of our heart for you. Christmas is not about presents and trees and lights and all that stuff, which can be fun, but Lord, it's not what it's about. It's about you and the gift you gave to us of your son from Bethlehem to, to bring us back, to give us bread, the bread of life. We thank you for this. We remember this. We exalt you now. We want to sing your praises now. In your name we pray. Amen.